Hello and welcome to Diminishing Returns. And very special guests this week, the hosts of the brand new podcast, Development Hell, uh, Connor Murray. Yes, lads, how's it going? And Mr. Sol Harris. Hi. Who? Never heard of him. (laughs) How the f*** did you get him? (laughs) He's a big, big fish. Hang on, so... Yeah. So you've you've started. I've skipped past you, Alan. I've skipped past Alan, our usual, our usual <laughs> guy. So you've you're you're cheating on me with someone else on another podcast. Yeah. And Connor of all the people. Yeah, it's called Development <laughs> Hell. <laughs> so you're backdooring me here. You're giving yourself a backdoor uh, a backdoor pilot on on this uh, on this very fine show here. Yeah. Well, okay. you've got you've got a you've got a little. You know, a bit of coal in the fire. You've got a, a finger and yeah, an extraneous part. It's pie. not announced yet, so you're the one who's leaving. <laughs> am, I the sort of a, am I the side character that turns up in a sitcom or something and causes the two best friends to turn against each other uh, by like overly befriending gonna... one of them? Mm, I'm Feathers McGraw from papers. Wallace and Gromit's Wrong Trousers. That's what I am right now. <laughs> the thing is, right, we've had Connor on the show before. Like three or four, or five times. So he's not a special guest, but now he is because he's not Connor. He's Development Hell. We're having Development Hell on. It's a crossover episode of Diminishing Returns yeah. and Development Hell. Uh, Development Hell is the the new podcast which has just launched, available wherever you found this show. Uh, it's a show about films that tried to get made and never got made and got stuck in Development Hell for years, and. Um, this is a crossover with that because we're covering one of those films that was languishing there for millions of years, uh, Watchmen, which is quite a quite an interesting film we're covering, to be honest. Uh, but we've chosen it because it was in development hell for ages. When you say Watchmen is an interesting film, do you mean that as in the story behind it getting made, or yeah. are you suggesting that the film itself is interesting in any way? <laughs> oh, um, I think it's going to be a really good topic, and I think we're going to have lots of uh clashing opinions and you know a real <laughs> a real interesting discussion between the three of us should we talk about how we first came to watchmen i saw watchmen at the cinema presumably like in 2009 and i'm pretty sure i was with you two wasn't i didn't no. we all go when we were at university no, 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 i no, definitely no, saw no. with someone you... if I, yeah it could, yeah i think i went with you alan oh did we you did two so? you two fuckers <laughs> left with yeah so <laughs> Ten years later, I got my revenge and started a little side podcast. That's, that's the <laughs> genesis of this. I remember being very... I, I was in a long-term relationship at the time with oh. my, my high school girlfriend. And, you know, we were, we were all off at university. <laughs> so we were we were in this situation where I would go back home one weekend and then she would come to Leeds where we were at uni one weekend and we'd kind of alternate oh, like that. Dear. And Watchmen came out on the weekend that I was going back home. And so... That's why you dumped her. <laughs> yeah, and everyone was really... <laughs> everyone was really, really, really eager to watch it immediately. Especially Connor. <laughs> going to say, it doesn't sound like me. <laughs> People were hyped for Watchmen. It was a big thing when it was coming out. So you all went and saw it without me. And then I, I believe I wanted to watch it when I came back. Everyone, like, no one wanted to watch it twice apart from Connor, who had no money and therefore couldn't afford <laughs> to see it a second time. Yeah. And so that, it's, it's quite a. 
<laughs> it's quite a um it's quite an important film in my development that I remember because it is in fact the first film I think I ever went to see on my own. Wow. Uh it's it oh. it might not quite be the first but it's certainly the the one I remember as the first and the the point where I became comfortable going to the cinema on my own. Cuz I think a lot of people <laughs> always go to the cinema with someone else and there's almost a stigma that you kind of feel about going on your own like oh what what a loser I'm just sat here on my own. But I know big film fans like myself after you've done it a couple of times you realize it's better. I love going to the cinema, sitting on my own, and just being with my own thoughts, taking in a film. Love it. Yeah, Much I fucking love going to the cinema by going myself. With someone else. Yeah, yeah I do. And time. Watchmen was the the first time I did that. I had to suck it up and go see it on my own because otherwise I wasn't going to see it. It was a different time because the superhero genre was still in its infancy. You know, talking about film yeah. superhero movies, Watchmen was. A really, really hyped film with a load of fanfare because uh, they they hired this hot new director Zack Snyder to come and make this seminal um, graphic novel, one of the real yes. like masterpieces of the genre, into a film. Hot off the thoughtful character piece of three hundred. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I I do remember comments from the likes of Joss Whedon at the time that suggested. It was kind of mad that we were trying to deconstruct the superhero genre before we had built it in the first place. And I think there was a lot to be said for that, because, you know, there was a real wave of, I guess, post-9-11 sardonic superhero movies like uh, Kick-Ass, Super, Watchmen, all these films, uh, The Incredibles. (laughs) <laughs> all these films that kind of tried to take the genre apart and look at it that way. But quite rightly, the genre didn't exist properly. You know, we hadn't had the Avengers yet. We hadn't really come to see superhero movies for what they are now. So it's weird that we did all this postmodernism up front. You know, even Christopher Nolan's take on Batman was arguably a, a sort of deconstruction of the what the comic books give us by mm. you know trying to put it through a funnel of realism and what well this you. is what i w- i wanted to ask about watchmen like how many layers of irony should i be working on here because it at some a lot of the time it just feels like it's being sarcastic but i don't think it is i think it's quite sincere and it's just dated yeah yeah can i lay my cards on the table up front here Generally speaking, I think Zack Snyder is a pretty terrible director. (laughs) I think we've touched on that before, but I do think he has talent. Uh, I do think he has purpose. I think he's very similar to Nicolas Cage, who we covered in depth uh, last week or the week before, something like that. Someone has to make the Pepsi adverts. Yeah, but he reminds me of Nicolas Cage in the it's like a force of nature, and you need some, you know, it's maybe not quite right. the right comparison, because Nicolas Cage isn't as artless <laughs> as perhaps Zack Snyder is, <laughs> but I wow. think Oof. I think Nicolas Cage is a force of nature, and you need, he's, he's like flowing water, and you need to build a dam to control but, him. And but put, he brings you know, life. Things in place. Yeah. Um, where I think Zack Snyder is a Snyder is a fire. Is a forest I think fire. if you are a producer, there are absolutely projects out there for which Zack Snyder is perfect. And I think Watchmen is arguably one of these cases, because I I don't think Zack Snyder has any 
ability to create subtext or thought or high mm. art, but I think he can make a really glossy, stylish film. And I think with Watchmen, this is my general thesis on this film, I think with Watchmen, the source material is so imbued with subtext and thought mm-hmm. that just letting Zack Snyder essentially turn the comic into a film using it as a storyboard, like shot for shot, it's so close to the to the source material. I think it arguably works, give or take. And I'm going to get into that in more detail, obviously. But I think what you're picking up on is a lack of a director who really knows what tone they're going for. Because right. they are just putting something they've seen onto screen, you know? Yeah, yeah. He has no understanding of it, yeah. Yeah, and I think the source material is very sincere, but it's very sincere in a cynical, you know, self-aware way. Well, can I ask you guys, when was this thing actually written, this this comic book graphic novel? 80-something. 1980. Okay, so its story is sort of contemporary as to when it was written. Hmm. Because one of the first things that jumps out is that this is set in the 80s, but it's really fueled by that Cold War paranoia, which just does not play at all anymore. Like, it just (laughs) does not hold any water. And particularly to people of the generation, my generation, the generation this is aimed at, young men, we're not alive (laughs) during that time, or we're not aware of that real Soviet Union era thing. So that's one area where it seems to just fail. You know, it's 30 years too long. Yeah. So, you know, your development hell, what took it so long? <laughs> well, it, it's one of these famous, uh, a lot of projects get called unfilmable, and Watchmen was very famously called an, an unfilmable work. I do know that Terry Gilliam tried to turn it into a film for a long while. Now, he, I'm sure you're aware, Alan, has a history of struggling to get things made for <laughs> yeah. decades at a time. Um, I think at one point, they were going to turn his version into a mini-series, which arguably, still arguably, is, you know, the way it perhaps should have been adapted. Uh, but then I think TV wasn't the landscape that it was, and getting money together for something like this on TV in, you know, probably would have been the 90s we're talking about, just mm. wasn't viable. I know that David Bowie at one point was trying to get a uh, a, a Watchmen musical together, but I assume that would have been a stage production, um, and I don't think he was able to secure the the rights from. Um, well, I'm guessing from Warner Brothers, um, who owned DC, but I don't know if they owned this work at that time. This, of course, was written by Alan Moore. Have we ever done an Alan Moore comic on on Diminishing Returns before? I don't think we have. Well, I don't know. I haven't covered V for Vendetta or anything like that, no? League of Gentlemen, no. or Extraordinary Gentlemen. No, no, surprisingly with the Sean Connery connection, no. Alan Moore, for anyone who doesn't know, is a famous curmudgeon. (laughs) He is, uh, by all accounts, an extremely talented comic book writer, but he also despises the the industry and the bullshit surrounding it. He's not a fan of... I don't know if he's not a fan of films in general, or just the way that Hollywood interacts with comic books, but he doesn't like that the comics industry now exists largely as a a sort of pitch ground for film ideas rather than its own medium. 
I believe he's on record as having never watched any adaptations of any of his comics, <laughs> not being a fan of the fact that they've been adapted in the first place, certainly not giving them his blessing, uh, and Watchmen is no exception to that. Um, I, I don't actually know if they owned it when it was published, but DC Comics now own Watchmen. It, it's actually been uh, folded into their expanded universe setting. I think Watchmen fans are probably not much too pleased about it, because a lot of them are on board with the fact that Alan Moore is completely against, you know, taking what was intended as a standalone thing and milking it for profit that kind of undermines the artistic intent behind it, you know. But this was a well-respected thing, You know, like, yeah, like Rorschach... You know, the one of the standout characters from Watchmen, Rorschach, is very much a kind of Batman pastiche. So it kind of seems redundant to have a world in which Batman and Rorschach both exist, you know? Mm. But um, in the little logo they uh, presented at the recent DC event where they announced all this stuff, uh, they played a little thing that had loads of DC movie, like, universe stuff in it. And it had a little clip from Watchmen in it, which does imply that's intended to be part of this shared universe. So, just to, to get on to the Watchmen again, yeah, what was it? A, a one thing, a one shot deal? It was like it was like a mini. It feels like it's a big world that we're just seeing a part of, and there's a whole history there. I think it was like a twelve issue mini series of comics, which was later compiled into a graphic novel. I think most people think it's a graphic novel now because that's how most people have consumed it, but it was initially released as a comic book. But that in the is just sense. this story, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah. it was a completely there's so much history thing. going on here and these quite small references to like people in the past that it feels like there's a bigger world that they're just sort of hinting at for the fans. Uh, and I'm not quite getting it. But is that I think that's sort of deliberately built into it, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's that's what we're talking about with this being postmodern and self-aware. Yeah, 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 yeah. Watchmen is often cited as the first postmodern comic book. And I don't know if that's accurate or not. I bet there are examples of postmodernism in issues of Batman and so on that existed before it, but it's certainly a landmark in, in comic book history. Um, it was certainly the first attempt that someone did something on this scale that was so blatantly about looking at the genre and, and exploring it from a kind of self-aware meta point of view. And I think that's a neat idea, and obviously it worked at the time. But is the problem with the Watchmen film, then, that it's a film deconstructing comics in the 80s as opposed to yeah. deconstructing superhero films in 2009 in a sort of pre-Avengers world? So essentially, you know, X-Men and, and Spider-Man world and Batman and, and that sort of thing. So it needed to be deconstructing those in a way that works for film as opposed to just making a comic book into yeah. a film. I'm going to go back to the comment that I attributed to Joss Whedon earlier about how people were trying to deconstruct the, the movie superhero genre before they built it. And I think that's exactly what you're just saying. It's it, you know, Had they done this properly, it would arguably have waited another 10 years and then would be coming out this year and it would be spiritually the same thing but updated and modernized in a way to yeah. explore 
what that is now and and you know there is a watchman tv series that came out last year which um we'll have to cover at some point uh in this episode but i'll put a pin in that for now you say they're trying to achieve something with this film but i don't necessarily think they were trying to achieve anything okay like this goes also ties into the point that there was nothing to deconstruct in terms of superhero films at the time all they had was from Zack Snyder's viewpoint, a really beautiful, nice storyboard that all he had to do was film. <laughs> and that's it. Yeah. You know, it's like, I think that's about as complicated as the decision-making process got for yeah. him. You know, he didn't achieve anything. It's just, we've we've got the rights to this. We have to make it. Okay, so just, just do this. If you copy these shots and say these lines in the right spot, you can't fuck it up too much. <laughs> I think there's merit to that, though. We covered Hamlet, uh, the 1996 Kenneth Branagh adaptation specifically, recently on this podcast, and mm-hmm. I think we we largely, as a group on that episode, felt that it was not a great film as a film, but as a kind of historical artefact and a, a filmed version of Hamlet the play. Hamlet, yeah. Yeah. We we thought it was arguably, certainly I did, and I think you were similar to me on that, Alan. We we felt mm. it was actually quite a uh, arguably important piece of film, and and certainly very worthwhile. and And I think Watchmen kind of comes under that category. I I agree. I think the the graphic novel is arguably dated and doesn't really work in the same way that it did. But to just have a filmed version of that graphic novel as it is almost identical to what it is with a few key changes i think there's a lot of value in that and a lot of merit to to then be able to go Mm -hmm. and say right so this is what watchman was this is what this comic was in the 80s that was really important bit of literature um you know it, it made time magazine's 100 greatest works of literature of all time uh watchman did i think it was one of two or three comics that made the list along with I think The Walking Dead. I so I think that's arguably where its value lies, rather than as a standalone film. Fair enough, but I think also like Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet, that doesn't make it um, easy to watch <laughs> or yeah, good yeah. in any way. <laughs> well, c- can we go back to two thousand nine again? Yeah, my my. So I read Watchmen. Uh, I think in the build-up to the film coming out. I don't think I'd read it before the film uh, was announced. I think I, you know, was reading lots of comics at the time, and I thought, oh, I better read that Watchmen thing. The trailer looks very cool. And I remember going in to see the film, and coming out of it thinking, well, I really enjoyed that, but I'm I'm like 90% sure with the pacing and everything... If I hadn't read the comic book, I don't think I'd have a fucking clue what just happened. I don't think I would have understood any of that. I didn't rewatch the theatrical cut of the film for this uh, podcast. And I, and I should add, that was the last time I watched any Watchmen movie cuts. Um, but I did watch the ultimate cut in preparation for this. And, you know, it's a good hour or so longer. So well, how, well, how long is it? So it's hard to judge the pacing in the same way. It's three hours twenty seven minutes, something Christ. like that. Twenty eight minutes. Yeah, that's the that's the that's the director or longer cut that includes the the pirates thing. Mm. But then the theatrical one was two hours forty. Well, yeah, and that was too long. 
yeah, so Alan, there, there's the theatrical cut, which I'm guessing is what you've watched That's twice. Was. <laughs> um, then in, there was a director's cut. <laughs> then there was a director's cut, which is you know something like twenty minutes, half an hour longer, and I think that largely adds extended sequences and you know bits of action and little bits of exposition. Uh, and I think the bulk of the ultimate cut comes from this thing called the something like Curse of the Black Freighter, Tales of the Black Freighter. Do you have any concept of what that is, Alan? No. Right, so Watchmen, uh, one of the many postmodern clever things it did was that there is running throughout the comic they keep checking in at this newsstand with this guy reading a comic by the newsstand. These two characters, the guy who runs the newsstand and the guy reading the comic book. And then there's a comic within the comic, which is this black freighter thing. And whenever we see the guy reading it, we then get a load of panels from the black freighter. And it's this kind of old school, dark brooding adventure story about a a guy who survives a shipwreck and i like that you know in a postmodern comic that's sort of thing i yeah yeah and there's a lot of parallels to be drawn with the the story the character the heinous things he does that you know to try and achieve a greater good and things like that have obvious parallels with um Vite in Watchmen and framing it as a story within a story. He's blind to how grotesque what he's actually doing is. Like, yeah, and and also his actions are being framed as a story, like a narrative within the narrative. So there's a lot of really nice things going on with the Black Freighter in there. Now, they like Warner Brothers have a really cool straight to video animation wing that's been going for the last ten, fifteen years. And one of their first projects was an adaptation of the Black Freighter cartoon, well, comic strip thing, uh, which got cut, obviously, out of Watchmen the movie. They produced a really nicely animated 26-minute or something like that adaptation that's pretty much, again, as it appears in the comic. I think Mm -hmm. Gerard Butler's the voice of the guy doing the narration and so on. It's got Jasper Harris in it. And... One of the many things the ultimate cut of Watchmen does is it restores that, so you get these little three-minute chunks of like animated pirate film <laughs> within the film. And I watched Tales, Tales of the Black Freighter when it came out, and I didn't really care for it. It just felt very pointless and dull. I was never even a huge fan of reading it in Watchmen, but I have to say, watching the ultimate cut and just getting three-minute bite-sized pieces of this story as like a palate cleanser between Zack Snyder Watchmen. I loved it. I absolutely loved this element of just this little animated story. I loved this film, re-watching it last night. I I really... I felt dirty. I was surprised (laughs) with myself. I think I can just about justify it, but part of it was I loved watching this Tales from the Black Freighter being restored. And it... It, it it works, you know? It, it largely restored the point of it from the comic. It So when I watched this film in the cinema, like I say, I didn't feel that it worked as its own thing. I don't think it really did what it set out to do, but it was a nice companion for people who read and liked the comic. Watching the ultimate cut, fuck me, it's long, it's a slog, you've got to be in the mm. right mood. But if you're willing to engage with a three-and-a-half-hour version of this film... I think it works on its own. I think suddenly the pacing was okay. 
The exposition was all there so that things made sense. The characterization was a bit better. And that's in spite of many flaws, you know? I mean, fuck me, what, the film opens with Richard Nixon, like, rubber mask. I mean, what is that? <laughs> and and that's presumably the sort of thing that makes you wonder how ironic this film is being, because it's like a live-action Futurama movie. Yeah. Not only is it, you know, a guy done up to look like Richard Nixon, but he's doing a silly voice! <laughs> he's not... It's not like Frank Langella, you know? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Like, when it comes to sincerity and stuff, it's like, the graphic novel is written very sincerely, like, in its satire, and all of the comments mm-hmm. it's trying to make it is written sincerely, because Zack Snyder is basically just copy and pasting something from one medium to another. It's funny how that sincerity can get interpreted in a different way if you don't know the graphic novel mm-hmm. source material. And and I, I think it's maybe quite difficult for people to quite grapple with initially, because this is a concept, you, you kind of think, oh right, well, it's going to be a comedy, it's going to be making fun of superheroes, and there's going to be like a Batman spoof and a Superman spoof. That isn't what this is. It, it's, a, it's, as you say, a very legitimate, well-thought-through, fully-populated, fully-built world that it inhabits. Yeah. As though this was a long-running series of comic books with its own history. And all that stuff works, because it it definitely feels like there's a deeper history here. I'm thinking, oh, I want to see what that story is. Oh, I'd like to... That'd be cool, seeing that, like, 1940s uh, superhero kind of feel done yeah. in yeah. retrospect. But, but then, you know, ultimately we've still got the same story at its heart. So, shall we get into the plot a bit? Yes, but first, let's lighten the mood a bit, because I feel like this has all been a bit heavy. Uh, I really should have brought this up before when we are talking about Curse of the Black Freighter, but I've prepared a little quiz for us here, guys. Yay! So, Curse of the Black Freighter is a comic book within a comic book, one of the several clever things Watchmen did, and that has inspired me to create a little quiz about films within films. Uh, So what I've got here is a list of films that fictional films from films we've covered on the podcast and i'm gonna give you the name of the fictional film i want you to tell me what actual film it appears in okay so alan these are all from the podcast which gives you an advantage over connor because you're familiar (laughs) with the podcast but connor i think is more clued up on on popular film than you so (laughs) it should hopefully even out uh so an easy one to start Angels with filthy souls. Oh, I got it, I got it. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. Keep the change, you filthy animal. Yeah, am I right? Yeah. It's Home Alone. You are right, yeah, yeah. It's Home Alone. It is Home Alone, which of course we did as a Christmas episode of Diminishing Returns. And do you know the name of the film in Home Alone 2, Alan? For a bonus point? <laughs> oh, um, no. <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> Uh, it's angels with even filthier souls. Oh my god, I was going to guess something stupid like that. <laughs> you were smooching with my brother! <laughs> Get on your knees and tell me you love me. <laughs> um, okay, another one. Log jamming. Oh, I know that one as well. <laughs> Are you jumping you? in, Connor? Go on I've, got, I've, got, I've got no idea. You should know this one, Connor. You should know this one. Yeah, I, I do believe that is the porn film from The Big Lebowski. 
It is. It's the one starring uh, Bunny Lebowski. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's two points to you, Alan. Running away with it so far. Uh, Connor, you'll definitely get this one. So you ready? Fingers on buzzers. Uh, shout out when you know it. Nation's Pride. Ah, uh, Inglorious Bastards. He's got it. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to give you three from the same film here. Nebraska Jim. No? Nebraska Jim. As in he's, he's a guy called Jim from Nebraska. Yes. I'm going to give you another one from the same film. Tanner. Tanner. I'm going to give you another one from the same film. Operation Dynamite. <laughs> this isn't something like Get Shorty or something like that, is it? I would. I'm gonna guess. Uh, Once upon a time in Hollywood. Oh, you've got it. Nicely Ooh, done. Yes, it an is. They are. Guess. I believe those are some of the spaghetti westerns that. Um, yeah, he goes over to it. Leo goes off to make. Yeah, in Once Upon a Time. Oh, uh, right. Yeah. Okay. They must be real films, though, as well, are they? I'd imagine they're actually real films that exist. Probably film Tarantino's probably made them. Those like ones the are. But I, I think Tarantino did actually make a load of little short films that are used in that film, but yeah. I mean, Nation's Pride from Inglorious Bastards is a real short made by um, Robert Rodriguez, I believe. No, no, it's Eli, Eli Roth, Roth, isn't it? Who Eli Roth, it, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, fingers on buzzers. This one should be very easy to get. Bill and Ted, the movie. <laughs> uh, okay, I'm going to assume that's in <laughs> Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. I'm going to say Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures. No, sorry, Connor. It was Bogus Journey. It's from the end when all the magazines, all the magazine headlines appear, sort of painting a picture of what they go off and do in the future. It says Bill and Ted colon the movie exclamation point on one of the magazines. So that might just be the headline of the magazine. But Uh, okay, this is one that I think you're going to get this one, Alan, but we'll we'll throw it out there. Garfield 3, Flabby Tabby. (laughs) Oh, oh yeah, I've got it. I've got it. Uh it's um Zombieland 2. Yep, Zombieland double tap. Double tap. Posters for Garfield 3 Flabby Tabby can be seen throughout the film and then there's the post-credit scene with Bill Murray where he's at a press junket for it. Uh right, Connor, you now get first dibs because you're trailing behind, so Alan <laughs> has to hold back on all which which I think he's been doing anyway, but all right, you ready for this one? Nope. Go ahead. Yep, swallow my cockachino. <laughs> right. Oh. oh, shit, what is that from? Uh, okay, I, I've got a guess. I don't know, something, something like Machete. I'm going to give you another clue. That same film began life under a working title, Star Whores. Oh, that's it, yeah, I was thinking the wrong thing, I've got it now. Galaxy Quest? <laughs> yeah, no, I like no. it. Alan, what were you thinking of initially, Alan? Out the of first thing I was thinking of was Boogie Nights. Oh. But then when you said that, I realised it was Zach and Miri make a porno. I don't actually think I've seen that. Huh. It's it's alright. It's, it's, it's not like a watchable. classic. Is it Kevin Smith? Yeah. It was one of his uh one of Kevin Smith's attempts at like mainstream stepping out of the viewersque universe and then he folded it back in years later, retconned it. Alright, this is one I don't think you'll get, but let's try you. Maximum Extreme. 
Max. This took a lot of uh, hard work on my end to to dig this name up because I didn't want to have to rewatch the film. <laughs> so it's a film you don't like. It is a film we covered on the podcast as well, as I've said. I, I think uh, fairly recently in the last last twelve months. All right, I'm going to give you a clue. There's another fake film in this film. T.J. Hooker, the movie. Oh, oh, oh! They go on a plane and they watch. They see T.J. Hooker, the movie. Yeah. Ah, oh, fuck! What was that? Tell me more. Oh, I've got it. I've got it. I've got it. I've got it. Yeah, I got it. <laughs> I don't have it. I guess Maximum Extreme stars. Uh, Joey Tribbiani because that is Charlie's <laughs> Angels that, that is yes yes that is absolutely correct Maximum Extreme is the uh, film franchise that uh, Joey from Friends character is an actor in in, in a Charlie's weird Angels. crossover which Joey is in Charlie's Angels and uh, TJ Hooker the movie is just something they're watching on an airplane at the start of the film and they say something like oh another movie based on an old TV show oh yes of course very clever bit of humour I mean if Charlie's Angels is anything it's clever (laughs) right Connor this is one for you oh god big lad stand up two points here I come come on (laughs) you know what I will give you two points if you get this because this is quite tough I think Coming home in a body bag. What? <laughs> Coming home in a body bag. Uh, I think it's also referred to as body bags a few times in the film. Oh, it does ring a bell, yeah. Jesus. The reason I pointed this one at you, Connor, is because it's Tarantino adjacent, this one. Oof. Or, not even adjacent, it's it's part of his uh, Tarantino-verse. From Dawn Till Dusk? No. <laughs> uh, Alan, want to take a stab? Um, it does ring a bell. Pulp Fiction. Um, uh, I'm gonna go True Romance. It is True Romance. Oh, it's yes. True Romance. It's the Vietnam movie from uh, True Romance, if you remember. Not the... really. No. Oh, it is there is a Hollywood producer, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's the the Vietnam movie he's uh, working on. All right, here we go. Brock Land. I, I should add, I um, I've tried to get every single one of these from every film we've covered on Diminishing Returns. <laughs> oh, so, uh, Brock Land. I mean, I've definitely missed some because you know, you know, it's not that easy to dig all these up. Brock Landers, Angels Live in My Town. Brock Landers. Oh, who's that? <sighs> Brock Landers, Angels Live in My Town. I will give you a clue and say. This has already been given up as an answer. Yeah, I know what it is. Yeah, okay. Get shorty. <laughs> no. it's, it's boogie nights. Boogie nights. Yeah, that's the uh, the the sort of semi mainstream film he makes. Uh, all right, uh, this is one for you, Connor. I think, except maybe not. Uh, <laughs> you You're not covering yourself in glory. Nothing here, to earn any credit. <laughs> yeah. All right. Goodwill Hunting Two Hunting Season. <laughs> Oh, okay, now this one is fuck well. yeah! <laughs> oh my god, I can see that clip. I'll give you a, I'll give you a very big clue. Uh, there's another fictional film from this same film called Blunt Man and Chronic. The Adventures of Jay and Silent Bob. <laughs> I'll give you that. I will give you that. It's Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. Oh fuck it. yeah, that's right. That's that's what I meant. That's what I meant. <laughs> All right. 
You're making a comeback because you're going to get this one as well, Connor. I know you are. All right? Yeah. Ready? It. Machete. Werewolf women of the SS. Don't. <laughs> Thanksgiving. Oh, <laughs> Come on. Uh, Grindhouse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Grindhouse, yes. They were the uh, fake trailers from Grindhouse. Uh, of course, Machete is now a real film, but, you know, that doesn't count. Machete. All right, we're nearly, we're nearly done here. This is nearly all of them. Thank God, this is humility. Windy City Heat. <laughs> okay, I know that one. <laughs> Windy City Heat. No? Do you want to guess? Take a guess at it, Connor? Philadelphia. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you should, Overthinking you it. said Chicago. <laughs> um, <laughs> I didn't know which city was the Windy City. Uh, Sol, is it Windy City Heat by any chance? <laughs> It is. It's from Windy City Heat, yes. Uh, Windy City Heat, of course, the wonderful example of cinematic concealism that we covered on yeah. a recent Diminisode about a, a man who's tricked into believing he is has been cast in a new film. Uh, and it's a kind of comedy documentary about the making of, of this fictional film that he thinks he's making. It's very good. Okay, I don't know if this is the actual name. I don't think we're given the actual name of the film at any point in the film. But best guess is it's going by the name P.W. Herman. <laughs> okay. The player. No. Uh, no. Pee-wee's Big Adventure? Yes, that is the the film based on Pee-wee Herman's life story, getting the bike that uh, he sells his life rights to make a film within the film at the end of the film. <laughs> but if you remember that. <laughs> uh, uh, this is one that I'm just going to give you because it's a TV series, and I'm very sad that it's a TV series. Uh, the Survivalist, which I was hoping was a documentary movie, but it's a TV series. It's from Tremors 5, Michael Gross's Burt Gunner <laughs> character. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. For two points, Connor. The Blair Witch Project. The Blair Witch Project. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping to God that was right for a second. It's Blair Witch Two. <laughs> well, just bear that in mind, Connor. What Alan just said. Yep. Book of Shadows. <laughs> Blair Witch Project Two. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you that. <laughs> And that that was for four points, that one, actually. <laughs> oh, damn, I wish I'd got that one. <laughs> uh, so that's... <laughs> so, so Connor, you're now on nine points, Alan's on ten. Why the fuck am I only one point behind him? Because <laughs> you got that four it's point... almost unbelievable. <laughs> He's been rooting right? me this whole time. Yeah, but you got the hard, the hard one that we just had for four points, Blair Witch 2. <laughs> right, this is the decider now, right? This po- this question is worth two points. So if you get it, Connor, you've won. <laughs> you ready? Yeah. Zombies party. Zombies party. Duh. I mean, I- I'll have a guess. I don't know it for sure. Go on, Alan. Have your guess. Shaun of the Dead. Oh, you're so close. You are so <laughs> close with that and just not quite correct. <laughs> Connor, you can uh, you can have a go now. Close to Shaun of the Dead, but not quite Shaun of the Dead. Dawn of the Dead? 
Oh, you fucked it. You were you were this close, Connor. You had it. What? And you just and you've just given it away to Alan. Go on, Alan. What's your next guess? Uh, Hot Fuzz. Yeah, it's in Hot Fuzz. It's a DVD <laughs> in the shop with yeah. the the cover from Shaun of the Dead, but the name's been changed to uh, Zombies Party. Okay. Uh, Alan fully deserved to win that anyway. So. was <laughs> <laughs> it? It was a tough competition. <laughs> yeah, well, that was that was a fun little game, you know. I enjoyed <laughs> enjoy doing the research there. Uh, all right, so that was our little palate cleanser. Let's get into the film itself, shall we? Watchmen, yes. Who watches them? Who actually watched it? Give us a give us a, a plot synopsis, Connor. Go on, explain the Watchmen to us. Uh, okay, so it starts with this old kind of old guy in his flat and he's called the comedian and a a shadowy figure comes in and he gets murdered it takes him about an hour 45 minutes or so of the film to fall down to the from the story that he's thrown uh, out of the window to the floor because there's so many flashbacks as he's falling yeah every now and then it cuts back to the fall to remind you that he fell just in case you missed it the first time (laughs) and then the longest intro credits sequence ever happens (laughs) happens <laughs> the times they are changing gets played one and a half times in its entirety <laughs> <laughs> this is the time like this is the one area that i think Zack snyder has like just excels as a filmmaker opening credit sequences <laughs> slow motion he knocks them out the fucking part like the best the best part of dawn of the dead his remake by a mile is the opening credit sequence more on that in a few months um and same here he picks a fantastic song and he just gives us like three minutes of just incredibly compelling visuals where you're just looking like what is this wow and it's shot so well and stylishly wow and so the opening of watchmen is just yeah it's fantastic it's almost like he's a a music video director that's got it is it really is it really is yeah (laughs) Um, so after it's funny that isn't it? Well, well, after what is generally regarded as the best part of the film, the following three hours. Yeah, David place. Bowie pops up in the background in one in one shot. That's my favorite part of the film. Uh huh. And uh, then we get introduced to possibly the greatest incel of all time, uh, Rorschach. <laughs> um, right. He's sort of hung up on women and thinks that anyone with a sexuality is a dirty slag. So you know, I mean, it's. <laughs> fair to say what what he would be doing these days if he was raised on the internet because his mother's a whore but one that True, he, yeah. he, he like ends up seeing her doing stuff and that sort of yeah and gives him of... a very bad relationship yeah. with, and she's not uh, one of those whores with a heart of gold either she's she's quite <laughs> nasty to him Rorschach is definitely the kind of guy that he's definitely the kind of guy that would just take out an AR-15 and go nuts if he lived not that's that's what he would do <laughs> Well, well basically look, what he's doing in the film, isn't it? Let's give him some credit. At least he's channeling it into something constructive in this film, eh? And if all the if all the incels on the internet would just channel their rage into something constructive, <laughs> something beneficial to society, that'd be great. Is it beneficial though? Is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? He's an interesting character because he he is very much the the closest the film has to a 
a direct parallel to a real hero, I would say, personally. Certainly out of the big famous heroes. And I'd say he's very much kind of a Batman, you know, noir detective kind of vibe. So he really is just this exploration of like, well, hang on, is Batman the good guy? And that's not exactly a a unique, clever thought nowadays, but in 1986, it kind of was. Mm. (laughs) It was still like a, a, a quite interesting point to go, well, actually, you can argue that Batman's the villain of the piece. I think Batman and Rorschach are two sides of the same coin. Like, Rorschach is the the poor incel that takes out all his rage on, like, a low level. And then Batman is, like, the rich incel that votes conservative. Yeah. And, you know, daddy's money gets them through. And would probably hit his wife if he had one. <laughs> Speculative. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, Rorschach is yeah someone who um, is a real misanthrope. Has grown to hate the world, but people in general, uh, and that's really set out that he sees the kind of bad in everyone. Because then at the end, it's like he's the one who's like, well, you know, you got we can't just kill innocent people. You know, he he's the one yeah. who still has some sense of conscience at the end. Yeah, yeah, and has to be killed for it. But much Quite like probably. Batman, he's the very difficult one who who won't drop it. <laughs> like in Justice League, Batman is is um kind of the go to guy for being difficult when they're like, oh wow, Superman's just like altered time and space to save the day, and Batman's the one who's always like, that's unethical, and uh, <laughs> it's it's interesting that he still very much has that role. In this Rorschach. Anyway, um, yeah. Rorschach is played by Jackie Earl Haley. Is that his name? Mm-hmm. Who was hot shit in 2009. This film kind of launched him into being a big deal. He he then uh, got a pretty substantial role in Shutter Island and the role of Freddy Krueger in the abysmal remake of Nightmare on Elm Street. And <laughs> I don't think I've seen him in anything for the last ten years, so... Well, this was a bit of a com- not this film particularly, but it was a bit of a comeback. He was a child star, teen star, star. Right. He was a teen actor. Uh, disappeared for about fifteen years, and came back, and he got Oscar nominated for his role in Little Children. Um, and oh, so no. that was a couple of years before this. He made this uh, in All the King's Men. He made a couple of films that, like, suddenly out of nowhere, he was a a, a name again. Yeah. And then yeah, he kind of disappeared again after a while. It's it's weird because he's. He is very good. He's a very um, charismatic man. He doesn't have the Hollywood good looks that maybe you need to. No, but he could play. But he's about five foot five as well. That's I think yeah. that does um, cause uh, casting issues. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But yeah. So I, I, speaking of the cast, with all due respect to this cast, basically not unknowns, but certainly no stars uh, being thrown into well, this. A lot of people that seem to like give up on acting off the back of this film, to be honest. Um, <laughs> um, Malin, Malin Ackerman, or Ackerman, I don't know how you say her name, Marlin, but uh, yeah, yeah. whoever plays Silk Spectre too, she she's spoken about how this film made her very disillusioned with acting and the Hollywood system. And, oh, really? I mean, she, she's, still, um, she's still working. I, I think she's doing TV and stuff nowadays, but... You know yeah. that she was kind of poised as a 
a big star, I think, off the back of this, and I don't think she's really done any other hugely noteworthy film projects. You know, Jeffrey Dean Morgan has a... He's very much a supporting role, but a a real scene-stealing supporting role, and again, he's kind of languished on the TV scene, you know... Uh, as as a TV A lister, he he was Negan in The Walking Dead. He was this huge, you know, big bad they got in in later seasons, and uh, I actually really like him as an actor. I think he's got a lot of um, personality. Uh, we've got a guy called Matthew Good, Adrian Veidt, Ozymandias. Yeah, um, I I don't really know him from anything. Do you? Not really. He's a British guy, isn't he? I think out of the out of all the actors in this, I think he's kind of got the least about him. <laughs> if if you know <laughs> what I mean. It's a big support in it. He was in the imitation game. Yeah. There's there's two more major cast members to go into. There's Billy Crudup, or Crudup, is that what you say it? Playing oh. Doctor Manhattan. Now that's a weird choice in the by all accounts, Doctor Manhattan is the obvious blow up character who, you know, that just sort of seems like, oh, we can get Brad Pitt in here and he doesn't even have to be on set. It's only a voiceover gig. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't Is know. Is some facial uh, thingy there? I his, imagine uh, it's, I imagine he's giving motion Was he not actually on but... set and then they just, um, yeah, covered well, him he's, up? Well, he's very apparently on the rewatch because the special effects have dated. It's very apparent that he's like entirely CGI in this. He probably was on set, yeah. I think he, if nothing else, gave a motion capture performance. Um, the only really notable star in this is Patrick Wilson, who I don't know if he was yeah, but much of a... You're talking notable star, but this is 2009. He'd just done Hard Candy and Little Children. Those are his two films. That well, no, no, I, I, I mean the only person whose career has gone on to anything and oh, endured. Anyway, that's, yeah. that's what I mean when I say notable. Yeah, he wasn't a notable guy back then particularly. And even now, he's not like a huge name, but... He's got his fans. I I like Patrick Wilson. Yeah, uh, I always like seeing him. Every time he appears, I'm like, oh, nice. That's my reaction. (laughs) Well, yeah, yeah, that's probably about as much as you're going to (laughs) get. It it largely feels like a very TV cast, and I I don't know if that speaks to Mm -hmm. Warner Brothers trying to Keep the budget save up. the money, like to yeah, like this is going to cost us so much in visual effects and and cinematography and all that sort of stuff that we need to save some money somewhere. I don't know if it's that, or I don't know if it's maybe at this point Zack Snyder was a powerhouse and they thought, hey, look, we can sell this on Zack Snyder and the Watchmen brand alone. I, I don't know. It's it's, but it is an interesting, uh, yeah. Film. I mean, it's, yeah. It... There is no George Clooney or Brad Pitt in there, you know, and I. I... Yeah, but if you if you got free reign, look, look, we we're gonna we don't need, we're not worrying about stars. We can cast anyone we want. Let's just fucking audition as many people as we can. Is it coincidence that we find so many people with not a lot of personality coming through? Is that down to the director? <laughs> is that down to the director choosing them, or is it that just down to how he's made the film that they're just given no opportunity to shine? Because even for example, Jeffrey Dean Morgan as the comedian. Mm so many opportunities for that to just be a, such yeah. a big character and he's doing something don't get me wrong but it feels like it should be so much more yeah i i think it's partly how it's written and then i think it's a you know it's written for a different medium and it, it, you know there there's a yeah. there's a saying that a masterpiece has already found its perfect medium 
And so, yeah. you know, adapting something that's this well regarded as a comic book into a film, you're you're setting yourself up for failure. And and I think this is, you know, one of many examples of why that perhaps is the case, is that these characters are written in quite a bland way, because that's kind of what superhero yeah. comics yeah. certainly were at the time. So it's evoking a, a style of, of writing and character, and Zack Snyder does nothing to counter that, uh, yeah, right, yeah. despite some of his actors' best efforts. When you're talking about writing, it's like one thing that really stuck out to me upon watching the film last night was the the dialogue and the the mm. way the lines are said and delivered. Um, yeah, the yeah. lines, like the real key, heavy hitting dialogue or lines or sentences or phrases or whatever from the graphic novel i remember them being so impactful and they carried real weight Mm. behind them and there was like an emotional thud every time like alan Moore like dropped one of those but in the film it sounds immature it sounds out of place yeah i yeah I, i i watched this with my girlfriend last night who'd never seen it um, I very cruelly subjected her to the ultimate cut, having never seen any of <laughs> anything. Um, but she likes Patrick Wilson, so she said she wanted to watch it with me, and yeah. she was just flabbergasted by the bl- the Black Freighter <laughs> stuff. She didn't have a fucking clue what was going on when this animated <laughs> animated Jasper Harris voiced like pirate corpse started talking. She was like, "What is this?" <laughs> when Patrick Wilson came on the screen, did she go, "Oh, nice." she did make the comment that it felt like it she she said you can tell this was written by a man i think is pretty much she she might she might have been a bit more scathing than that but (laughs) no shit but she she yeah she she picked up on a sort of toxic masculinity vibe running through the film god yes and the thing with that is there are themes being explored that tie into that intentionally, but then yeah. Zack Snyder, I think, is just a very good example of toxic masculinity. <laughs> so <laughs> there's a lot of it in this film that I think is self-aware and, and on purpose, and then I think a lot of it is just in the film in a completely unironic way. On that note, there's a sex scene between um, Patrick Wilson and... Yes, I was. Is, I was wondering. Was that supposed does... to be funny? Was that a sarcastic <laughs> sexy? I I can't imagine it wasn't sort of. It has they to must be have right. Known. It has. Zack Snyder must have known what he was doing with that. I I think that is the only instance of it, but it has to be a joke, right? I I I agree. I think because because it's got a punchline of of you see both. You see both of their cum faces, and it's unusual, I think, you see a man's cum face in something that isn't a comedy. And then they hit the fire button, and the fire blares out. And it's set to Hallelujah, the song. Yeah, that's right. And, and it goes on, like, I don't know if it goes on it's to like, the theatrical cut. Yeah, I, I wondered if it had been extended for the ultimate cut, but it felt like the sex scene from Team America, because it just went on so long. Yeah. No, it does go on, yeah. And um, and I don't know if you saw, but uh, as part of his new Justice League director's cut that's coming out, they released a trailer for it recently, uh, which is just 
lots of slow motion quote unquote cool footage from Justice League <laughs> set over the entirety of that song Hallelujah for three and a half minutes and Patrick Wilson like tweeted out the trailer like huh this song sounds familiar <laughs> or whatever <laughs> so if nothing else he's got a sense of humour about it I'm trying to remember if in the graphic novel it included that visual gag I'm really trying to remember because in the graphic novel his impotence was a lot more I don't know, heavy hat. It was a lot more impactful emotionally. Yeah. Like, you know. Yeah. Yeah, that scene, that plays almost like a little gag that he can't get it up. Which, you know, to be fair, if you were about to sleep with a girl and you know that her ex-boyfriend is basically a god. Yeah. He's omnipotent. He can no, explode omnipotent. you with the power <laughs> of his... <laughs> He's omnipotent. He can explode you with the power of his thoughts, and as far as you're aware, he perceives all space and time, like before it even happens. So he's gonna know. So he can expand to whatever size he wants. Yeah, he's gonna know as soon as it happens what you've done, and he might get pissed (laughs) off about it. Yeah, but you're gonna come so hard that would play on your mind, wouldn't it? But he manages to get it up because they go and kill somebody or beat somebody up. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, whatever works for you. Hey, yeah. Um, there was a scene I don't remember from the theatrical cut in the cut I watched last night that had serious, serious like Black Lives Matter undertones, which I just thought were very interesting to watch now. Where the uh the comedian and the Patrick Wilson one go out in his little nice. owl ship and take on a load of protesters and just start like beating the shit out of them and shooting them with yeah, beanbags yeah. and stuff. Is that in the theatrical cut as well? Yeah, yeah. I saw that, yeah. Oh, okay. Because that's where they deliver the whole the really out of place What happened to the American dream line? <laughs> Another example of in the comic it's so heavy and meaningful and then in the film it's like whoa who the, who the fuck talks like that seriously <laughs> yeah I think um, the, part of the problem with the comedian's character is that you know we're supposed to see that he's this very dark and kind of very bad side to him but you know ultimately he's on the good side but they, at no point do we actually see him really doing anything good yeah. or being a good person in any way yeah yeah. So it's just feels like, well, this guy's just an asshole, isn't he? But he's mm. killing the people you want him to kill, so that's okay, I suppose. Yeah. But I, I mean, I, I, I want to talk about Doctor Manhattan because I think Doctor Manhattan is such a high, high concept idea that really, like, it takes a lot to sell to an audience, and I, I, I give this film a lot of credit for not talking down to its audience, but I don't know to what extent it conveys the concept. Like, do, do you get Dr. Manhattan Allen? Does it make any sense to you what that is, what he is? Yeah. Okay, good. Because, I, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm not 100% that I even get it, and I've read the graphic novel, but I think I do. But I really like him as a, an idea. Like, my my read is that he's essentially such a smart guy who studied, like, how things are put together and built in so much detail that when he is disintegrated by this mad science machine, all his atoms taken apart, he's like somehow able to put his atoms back together because he tries really hard. 
<laughs> over a few over a few days. And this is something that works much better in the graphic novel because in the comic, it, uh, sorry, in the film, it plays as if it's happening over like what three days. He puts himself back mm. together, whereas I think the graphic novel plays it as taking place over much longer, and people think the base that they were doing the experiments on is haunted and have seen sightings and so on. Um, mm. But anyway, he he slowly manages to put himself back together, and then by the time he completes it and puts himself back together he has such a profound understanding of of quantum mechanics and and the universe that he can just manipulate it at will that's kind of my read on it is that what you guys get from it or (laughs) well to be honest with you i didn't feel the need to go further than science magic science machine turned him into a superhuman like he could have been the janitor that walked in there and but I don't, I, I don't it think, turned him into a. Uh, it couldn't have been a janitor because the whole point is that he was a very smart person and knew how knew how things worked at a minute level. Anyway, it couldn't have been. Just I don't anyone. think that that particularly comes across then. No, but like I mean, I what my point is, I think yes, he's come out smart because he was smart anyway. But like, right, right, yeah. Well, you I see, think I think that's a shame because then, perhaps it would have affected them slightly differently. But because I, I think still... Doctor. I, well, this is the thing. I don't think. I think if you put someone else in there, you wouldn't get Doctor Manhattan. Get. I I think that's the point. Or potentially, it would scatter their consciousness, but they would just never be able to put it back together, and they would be a ghost or something. Who fucking knows? But I. This no, is your, what I love your thesis with... there that you presented makes sense. Yeah, I, I. It's not that I disagree. I just. I. It didn't feel yeah, like yeah, I needed yeah. to. I went. I was happy with the kind of superhero nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. In this. In this context. Yeah. Is the scene with him as a child being made to disassemble and put a watch back together in the theatrical no. cut? Okay, that's maybe no, part no. of this. There's, There's a lot a of... Uh, he does mention yeah. that his dad was a watchmaker. There's obviously a lot of clocks and watch references yeah. there, the watchmen, I suppose. Yeah. See, I, I just think Dr. Manhattan is such a beautiful, quite metaphysical idea that they just throw into the middle of Watchmen, which is otherwise, yeah. you know, for all things considered quite grounded the other superheroes aren't super are they they're just sort of yeah people who wear capes and yet dr manhattan is quite a you know he's he's more of a metaphor than a thing that really holds up to real scrutiny and i i just think it's such a dare i say quite a profound thing they're exploring in the comic book and i just i his genesis is my favorite part of the film in the in the ultimate cut certainly where you see a bit more of that backstory so who are you giving credit to here are you giving credit to the graphic novel or to the film yeah i'm giving credit to alan moore and the the comic (laughs) okay but you know the film still put that on a screen so i could enjoy it (laughs) but (laughs) I don't think I don't know if Zack Snyder quite understood what he was trying to convey was happening with the origin story, you know, because I think he would have framed it and timed it a bit differently if he did. So this is this is one of my kind of problems with plot-wise. It's something we've come up bef- against before in this kind of film is the kind of multi-layered stakes that don't balance out. So it is literally like the world is going to end in a huge nuclear face-off. Yeah. But my girlfriend's left me. Oh, that's annoying. And it's like this balance of, like, why is this 
this superhuman who has no oh, sense no, no, of no, 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 time, no, no. like even trying to hold down a normal monogamous relationship. Is that like, what's that? Is like? that what you? Well, I think he doesn't want to be a dick. <laughs> well, no, he left his missus just to get with her because she was younger <laughs> and more attractive. <laughs> yeah, well, it, with Doctor Manhattan, and and I think this film does a nice job of this actually, but obviously it's more from the graphic novel again. Doctor Manhattan evolves as the story progresses and and Mm -hmm. starts off very human and just drifts away from it and you can see that with you know whether or not he's choosing to wear a loincloth or just swing his big blue dick around you can see it in a number of ways and i think at the point that the film takes place in like in terms of its present he is just completely removed from humanity and i and i don't think he's sad yeah. or bothered about breaking up with his girlfriend i no, think no, he's no. just worried well, concerned bothered. yeah I, I think he's concerned about what it represents with regards to his tie to humanity he it makes him aware that he is completely losing touch with people like i relate to that i guess <laughs> is, is the, the uh the idea of feeling yourself drift away from humanity and just realizing mm. that you don't have to care but but also you know wanting to maintain some sense of humanity so i guess i relate to that my problem i think is when it, ca- it comes to a head he touches her face she suddenly re- realizes that this guy is her the her biological dad is the comedian and she's very upset about that, um, even though he's not like had any direct influence on her life or anything. And that's what makes him go, oh, wait, humans, good family. I'll save the world. It just didn't make any sense. <laughs> Did that make sense how I described it? Because that's how it comes in the film. Well, it's not the revelation about the comedian that does that. It's the fact that he then reevaluates her and sees the improbability of her life. But that is a complete fallacy of probability, though. <laughs> I think part of it is that, you know, he's he is he's a scientist and he's got a scientific mind of trying to understand what humanity is and what makes people human and all the logical inconsistency that comes with it. And I think if if nothing else, it just serves as a reminder to him that humans don't necessarily follow logical paths of yeah because there's that line that he says where processing like biologically an alive human and a dead human aren't different like in terms of the atoms and that line was a bit too on the nose for me when he said that because it's just a bit like okay we're trying to drive home the point here that he's not seeing people as people like obviously there's a you be you've got to acknowledge the sense of consciousness about people you know yeah um um yeah are we all right jumping ahead a bit here? So essentially, yeah. Dr. Manhattan, he's this omnipotent god, deity, but he's American. And America is able to use the fact that they have this god on their side to hold off the Cold War from turning into World War Three, nuclear Armageddon. And there's a lot of interesting exploration, I think, of whether or not like where the ethics lie with that but at a certain point in the film dr manhattan fucks off and goes to live on mars because he's kind of just needs to clear his head out and think 
and that's what happens when you break up with someone and you just need to get away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, Ozymandias puts his evil plan into action. He's he's kind of had a big evil plot all along. Oh, uh, we you. Out, we find out he was behind a load of naughty evil assassination stuff. Uh, and basically, what it boils down to is a false flag operation. He believes that the only way to prevent humanity from killing itself, wiping itself out with a nuclear war, he has to unite, well, basically America and Russia, but he has to unite all of humanity against a joint threat, a greater threat than one another. This is the one thing I hate this film for, because uh, they made a big change here. In the film, he unites them against Dr. Manhattan. He he stages mm-hmm. a kind of huge energy blast attack on New York, makes it look like Dr. Manhattan has turned on humanity killed thousands in the process and uh, brings everyone together in the process. Dr. Manhattan sees it for the the sacrifice worth making that it is on his part, sees it as an act of peace to bring the world together and goes along with it. And, you know, it, I, I love it as a concept, but I there's just a bad taste in my mouth because I don't know if you know, Alan, but in the comics, this is a bit different. Okay, okay. Sorry, can I ask Alan what he thinks the comics did instead? <laughs> Instead Ooh. of all these bombs and stuff going off, what what give us an idea of what you think might have happened anyway? Um, but it has to be something with the same kind of dramatic impact because it won't be just like, well, he just disintegrated all the nuclear bombs because that's too peaceful. It doesn't have the dramatic punch. I would oh kill uh, the world leaders. I think no, the key no. things, like the key things that it maintains, are it's absolutely massive. Uh, does yeah. kill Thousands millions die. of people in one go, and right. uh, yeah. does unite does the world. Does he snap his fingers and half the people die? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, basically, in the comic, it's exactly the same, but instead of just making a huge explosion, he teleports a gigantic squid monster down to New York <laughs> and... <laughs> wipes out thousands of people in the process, leaving this dead squid monster lying around. And they see it and they go, oh, this was a like a, a failed invasion attempt from an alien species. That's what this squid must be. It like psychically wiped out a load of people when it arrived as part of its arrival. Now there are aliens to worry about. Let's unite Earth together because now we have to worry about aliens. And Obviously, it's not an alien being. It's a genetically created giant squid that Ozymandias has made. And that's why he's got a fucking bizarre tiger pet thing with horns. Because he's been playing around with genetics. <laughs> so in the film, he just has this weird cat thing that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But in the comics, it's like a yeah. little detail. That... So in that, in that comic book version, is Doc Cock... Is Manhattan, he... Yeah implicated as the villain. No, no. And no, he no. has to kind of just take it on the chin. Well, I no, really like that element. I like that element in the film that that's Yeah. that kind of duality I, that. I what I don't like about it. Number 1, I I think a giant squid is just such a fun cool visual. It's your big yeah, payload or of ridiculous comic book silly nonsense. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. But in a way that is very self-aware and like I say deconstructing the genre. And you know it's mm. it's it's like imagine if the modern equivalent would be one of those giant 
woodlouse things from the end of the Avengers that attack New York. But instead of sending it to New York, they send a dead one back to New York. Do you know what I mean? It, it's like, it's that kind of clever deconstruction of a a genre trope that's from the comics. So, number one, I like it because it's it's continuing the idea of taking apart the comic book genre. Uh, number two, it is that kind of cathartic payoff that you want in a big act three moment for the film that you kind of don't really get in the film as it stands. Uh, mm. Number three, I don't quite buy that the world would unite against Dr. Manhattan when he was this American, you know, guy yeah, yeah, doing yeah. the American bidding. I I, I, I kind of think Russia would either see it as an opportunity to attack or they would think that America's going haywire, Let's now we have to kill America. I don't buy that it would unify them in the same way that an alien invasion would. Uh, and number four, I think it just reeks of a kind of pathetic spinelessness on the parts of Zack Snyder and Warner Brothers. They, they've they had so much reverence for the source material to uh, to then yeah. just turn around and, and not stick to their guns yeah, if in you, the final moment. If you're going to make the choice to change things, to make it fit within your film world, then yeah. go back and change some things that make it work. Yeah. Yeah, and that was the whole point about having like a giant psychic squid thing. And the, like It gives you that payoff at the end of the book but it's something that a film could never do. I mean, uh, uh, Alan, just imagine the New York skyline, okay? And then just a big, huge brain squid just plops, just poof, just lands on it. And it's like... <laughs> but that's that's basically <laughs> what it and is, though, you know? It's a psychic wave. It's not an explosion. It's a psychic wave that just kills a lot of people in a city, in a few, like, city blocks. Yeah. Like, it's something... Everyone in, like, so a mile radius of the squid just dies. Yeah. Yeah. Which is... <laughs> yeah very it's so weird but unnerving and i love it and it's such a shame that they change it i think anyway um you know i i think the ending does quite a good job if they had to change that uh the other significant change to screen i've spoken about on this podcast before but it's when um uh rorschach whacks that guy in the head with a meat cleaver in the uh in the comic he oh, yeah. um in the comic he's like handcuffed to a furnace or something and the building sets on fire and he gives him a a hacksaw and the guy's like I can't cut through the chains quickly enough I'm gonna die and he's like you can cut through your bones and like walks away but Saw had just come out like five years earlier so they were like oh we better change And that went on to inspire 127 hours (laughs) (laughs) I think this is such a visually wonderful film and yeah like there are times where it looks a bit fake and digital but i can forgive it because it's got such a visual vision behind it you know and it looks really... like comic book art you know uh, and that's a good thing I'm, t- I'm i think that's fine to represent that in film i don't know i, I anyway i mean my, my point is i think this is a visually wonderful film i think Zack snyder's real strength as a director is picking a good soundtrack and there, you know, this this does just have great songs all over it that largely, you know, work quite well, even if they're a bit on yeah. the nose in places. What's going on with Ozymandias's crap wig? Oh, I don't know. I don't. Crap? I don't. I think he's the worst thing about this film, to be honest. How they bring him to life. He he should be such a charismatic scene chewing performance, and he's so yeah. uninteresting and bland. You know who they cast in. In the TV like series 
Watchmen that came out recently, you know who plays him? No. Jeremy Irons. Oh, whoa. That's that. who you should be get. That's the kind of casting you should have on mm-hmm. that character. I have to say, I was sort of slagging off the cast. So I think, I think that it feels like they're held back. I mean, Jackie L. Haley as Rorschach brings a great sort of ferocity to what he's doing. Yeah, it's very yeah, nice. yeah. I think he's very good, passionate. Yeah. He has quite a distinct way of speaking as well, which brings him character. I think Patrick Wilson. The, I think the problem with Patrick Wilson's character, and the same goes for Billy Crudup's character, is that they're both written to be these very downplayed, like nothingy characters. Like yeah, Doctor well, Manhattan, Clark it's Kent just this kind of Superman, isn't inner he? piece, just, isn't the, it? Yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. Patrick Wilson's character. So I think he's doing the best he can. I think Patrick Wilson brings a likability to it. I mean, the woman in it. I, I it could have been anyone. I, I don't know what. Like there's nothing about her, and like I say, the the comedian it just feels like there should be more there. You know, it just feels like that should be the one that steals the show. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Just all felt a bit flat. I suppose there was lots of things that I just thought were crap. I mean, we haven't really go on then slag it off a bit because we we've been pretty positive. And I definitely I haven't slagged it off that, as much so... as I'm I should have. Yeah, slag it off a bit. Go on. Let's let's have some negatives. <laughs> it's quite. Uh, it does feel a bit episodic. It kind of jumps. Here's 20 minutes with this character. Here's the backstory for this character. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, I guess that's the nature of maybe it was written as serialized. Yeah, 12 issues of a comic book. Um, yeah. Speaking of that, actually, you know what the comic does, which is really quite incredible, is that um, the whole thing is is done in this sort of... I mean, it's meant to be like a Rorschach uh, print, but it, it's kind of like a palindrome where the panels on the comic kind of, they all like sync up in the middle like a mirror image, and then it's like the same panelling going outward from the middle, if you know what I mean so the layout, like the boxes are all the same size and everything and there's a lot of okay, yeah. mirror imagery as you kind of, so like the the first and last pages of the thing have a lot of like synchronicity between them, it's it's really clever like that, yeah. use of the medium and obviously there's none of that yeah. here because you can't yeah. do that in a film can I you? think that's why it's regarded as a masterpiece it's because it's it uses literally every single tool it has available and uses them extremely well down to dialogue, actions, words, the title themes, what characters stand for and then down to the split screening of the of the, of the, of the illustrations themselves that's why it's a masterpiece in, in that and it is in terms of dialogue, this is it's it's a very word for word kind of translation, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And that I think that does not work <laughs> in film. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Problem, I get that. I because obviously, the nature of comic books is that you're kind of limited to how much dialogue yeah. you can put in there. It's yeah, you've got you to keep have, things like, simple, quite snappy. Simple dialogue, yeah. I th- there's a bit I love in the comic that I don't think makes it into the film. Now I might just be misremembering where. Someone tries to talk, like I think Silk Spectre. Someone tries to talk to Doctor Manhattan, and and he says something like, "Not now, I'm answering you half an hour from now," or something like that. And and when he says it, you're like, "What?" And then half an hour later in the story, he like repeats the same lines, and it's like, "Oh, okay." And that's like, it, it, they don't really get into it in the film, but obviously he can perceive all of space and time and all of that, and. Yeah. Ozymandias has built a device that kind of 
clouds that and they they do touch on this in the film but i don't think they do a very good job of conveying it but in the comic he starts to get really confused and he starts like talking out of sync with time and and like you can tell it's really confusing him in a way that in the film i think he just says like oh i don't know what's going to happen now how interesting yeah he just can't see the future that's whereas in the comic it's like really like i say he's talking out of sync with himself and and it's just handled so nicely in the comic and i think that's a real missed opportunity because that is something you could do some really cool visual things with and you know we've seen him split into you know several people to have a kind of two party gangbang which uh something i'm i'm I really like that made it into a a mainstream <laughs> film to be honest yeah. is that <laughs> um another thing that sort of felt a bit um missed opportunity for me was didn't feel like the 80s it just didn't have that kind of period yeah. feel to it which bear in mind that this is now a period thing yeah, if you're making it 30 years later the night owl machine the little flying thing that he has I liked that that was kind of a bit clunky and old-fashioned. Mm. Like, not super sleek and cool, but like how, that was about it. How 80s do you want it to be, you know? Because, uh, I mean, it, it doesn't Walk shout moons, about the fact uh, that it's in the pad. 80s, but it, it most definitely is. I, I kind of agree. I, I, I forget that it's meant to be set in an alternate 80s rather than modern day, but then it kind of has to be to work, and it is this awkward compromise between having a film that was made in the 80s which obviously can't be and not wanting to update it (laughs) so yeah i kind of get where you're coming from with that yeah i'm not sure really how to define it but it definitely didn't i i I think if that had been set in alternate 2009 and you know george bush is the president is for a third term it's like i I don't know i don't think it would have made any real difference to anything. Yeah, I agree, I agree. I think that ties into what you said earlier about it was too early to deconstruct the superhero genre that hadn't been fleshed out yet for cinema. Mm. Yeah, You'd have to swap the Vietnam scenes out for Afghanistan, but it would basically be the exact same film, yeah. I I, I love that this film exists, like I say, it's just a pure time capture, like a pure version of that graphic novel on screen, I, I really enjoy it, and, and I have to say, the ultimate cut made me think a lot more of it. I I liked this back in 2009 when I watched it, but I was, what, 19 years old? So I didn't trust my opinion very much. My opinion has soured significantly on Zack Snyder in the last decade, and I was expecting to go back to this film uh, only to like downgrade my rating that I gave it back then, only to realise that I'd been foolish but watching the ultimate cut actually made me think a lot more of it and a lot more secure and comfortable in my feelings for the film. I'm I'm just going to go ahead and give it an 8 out of 10 and that's a really solid 8 out of 10 I'm giving it. See, when I was 19, I was emotionally retarded. <laughs> so I mean, if I really enjoyed the graphic novel and I remember thinking the film sort of did the best it could like the theatrical cut you know given the realities of the medium and stuff i remember connor i i remember you posted on facebook back in 2009 you posted something to the effect of watchman is amazing great film absolutely (laughs) mind-blowing brackets 
if you like the graphic novel. <laughs> that sounds very much like the kind of shite that I would have come up with back then. <laughs> the what do you call it? So yeah, watching the film last night and kind of brought it up earlier about Rorschach being like one of the most incelly incels to ever incel. Right. I really super want to read the graphic novel again to see if the film did butcher characters like that or if I have changed as a person. You know what I mean? Well, you you used to idolise Don Draper and aspire towards him, from what I remember. I still do. I think he's sexy as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, I, I, I feel that way towards John Hamm. I'll, I'll give you that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, you know, like with this, like with all the lines in the film and given how cheesy that they're delivered, I want to read the novel again to see if it is that cheesy and if I've sort of matured and changed my view on things or if the novel is just genuinely better and how it handles those things than the film, you know, which I think it probably does, but I want to read it again to make sure. You say that the value of the film lies in it being like a sort of like a direct copy. I think that does give it some value, but not a lot. And it just sort of generally all around doesn't do a good job. So I'm going to give it four stars, two out of five. Wow. What a fall from grace. Jesus. <laughs> I mean, it looks nice, but I just don't see the value in it. You know, he just copied it. And the, the, the parts that are clear directorial decisions detract from it. They don't add anything. They only take away. Uh, I don't know. It's it's like, look, I, I might see a value in, in an audiobook of the Da Vinci Code. Now, terribly written book, no real artistic justification in the book, but you can adapt it to audiobook and I don't have to read it. I can just uh, listen to it. And there's value in that. And you can do a good job and I'd go, oh, nice job. Good audiobook of the Da Vinci Code. Still the same story, though. This is this is for people who want to familiarise themselves with Watchmen, but can't be asked reading it. Because <laughs> it's too much hard work to to look at some pictures. Yeah, that, that's why I gave it 4 out of 10 and not 0. It has some value, but, but not a lot. Well, I think what I haven't really driven home here is just how tedious I found the film. It's two mm. and a half hours long. Um, it's quite boring for the most part. Um, but boring isn't right. Tedious is the word I want to use because it just it feels like I've seen it all before, I guess. And I, mm. uh, how much of that would have played better in 1985? I'm I'm sure. Especially, I, I, like I, I have no doubt that it works better as a graphic novel. It worked better in 1986. It works better if you're familiar with comic book history. I'm sure of all that. But I'm watching it as a mainstream film watcher who has no knowledge of that, and that's how I have to approach it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and on, on that level, it's um, it feels quite, uh, uh, yeah, pedestrian, I suppose. And it feels like it's trying to get into ideas that it never quite delves deep enough into, I suppose. And I think in a post-Marvel Cinematic Universe world where they've sort of... Sell, uh, Postmodernized themselves in a lot of ways, it feels even less relevant than it did ten years ago. Hmm. 
So anyway, I guess the end result of that is a four out of ten. Oh, oh. And yet, this is probably going to be our highest-rated Zack Snyder film on the podcast. So <laughs> what does that say? I um, I I have to say, I I think um, the idea of modernizing Watchmen, doing a, an updated take on it, is interesting. But I yeah. think that exists. Uh, there's a, a show on Amazon Prime called The Boys, which is very popular at the minute. It's a uh, Seth Rogen, Nevin Goldberg. Um, spearheaded thing and it's very i mean it's obviously far more comedic in its approach but it is very much what if superheroes were real again which has been done to death but it's done very well and it's a really nice deconstruction of how would these superheroes interact with pr firms and right, you know yeah. mar- sponsorship deals and all these sorts of things factored in and I think it is the closest thing we will have to a modern Watchman or something in the spirit of Watchmen, to be perfectly honest. Uh there's there there is of course the actual Watchmen TV series from Damon Lindelof, which uh came and went last year as well. Uh it was a self-contained season. Uh there may be future seasons. They might just call it a day there. Uh I think Damon Lindelof says he's done with it, but maybe they'll get someone else in to continue it. Um, I watched episode one of that show. I don't know if you guys watched any. I'm guessing not. No. No. I mean, I watched it and I thought, yeah, good. But I just don't need this in my life and it's not that good. And I I just, I really struggle with TV drama, to be honest. Like, (laughs) it was like, yeah, it was fine. But I just don't need that. But but again, that felt like a very true to the tone of the graphic novel, but modernised kind of thing. It's it's definitely a sequel to the graphic novel rather than the uh, movie, but I think you could kind of watch the movie and then go into the TV show and you'd kind of get it, but it is apparent that um, it seems to be set in a world where the giant squid thing happened, put it that way, based on episode one. Right. So, you know, the Watchmen TV series... Seems to be decent, but I can't be asked investing another nine hours in it, I'm afraid. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Well, what a turn turn up for the books, eh? <laughs> yes. And uh, that's a good, a good indication, I think, of what happens when a film spends ten years in development hell and actually gets made. Uh, it's very rare that people are satisfied with the results. Uh, for more, for more on films in development hell, check out Development Hell Hooray! with uh, with this week's special guests, Development Hell. Hooray! Sol Harris, <laughs> who's been been a great guest for us, we'll have to have him on the show again. Thanks, Sol, and uh, <laughs> Connor Murray. <Hooray! laughs> oh, you cheeky! <laughs> that, that's our catchphrase for Development Hell. Actually, oh, you cheeky! <laughs> all right well thanks for coming in guys development hell is out now uh episode one is on rendezvous with rama yeah rendezvous with rama long gestating arthur c clark adaptation that went out for free ages ago on on our patreon feed but uh episode two which how is it for free on the (laughs) (laughs) because they're paying for for They're paying for Diminisodes. They're not paying for Development Hell. That was like a little <laughs> bonus on top of everything else. Um, Free bonus. 
But things you haven't heard, even if you're on Patreon, we got Spider-Man episodes coming out on Development Hell. We got Ooh. a uh, uh, we've got, we've Stanley got Kubrick stuff. We got Alfred Hitchcock. Uh-huh. Yeah. And uh, George A. Romero. It's great. I had so much fun making that podcast. That was great. Yeah. Well, if you like Sol Harris, uh, but you think he'd be better without being tempered by me, then try <laughs> Development Hell. And I, find I will out say, just, actually, Alan. Just what it could be. <laughs> Well, I don't, I will say actually, because I've been going back and editing these myself, all of them. Um, I'm actually very like calm and chilled out. It's weird. There's like it's very not low energy, but I'm just very like it's very NPR for whatever reason. My my approach to the thing. It's been very like right. Well, today on Development Hell, thank you, Connor, for joining us. It's very Desert Island Discs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. Um, Go and listen, because it's weird. It's weird. I don't know what happened. I think I think you get me all riled up, Alan. I think that's <laughs> is right. that right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What podcast are we talking about here? Which one? <laughs> well, that that we were talking about that was diminishing returns. Oh, okay, but, got it. Got um, it. Of course, there isn't. But but you you are you know easily easily mistaken for uh, the other podcast, Development Hell. And you know, Development Hell's new at the minute. So if you're gonna if you're gonna subscribe and listen to one show out of the two. I'd, I'd go with development hell. Give it a little. They, they, they little do need all hand. the help they can yeah. get. Just give them, it's, it's like a charity. <laughs> Please. Oh <laughs> uh, dear. Oh, and you know what, guys? A uh, little shout out for um, like we always ask you guys to rate and review us on iTunes. Obviously, that's a massive help, and please do and subscribe. Please do. Um, but IMDb have inexplicably. Uh, change the criteria for what can be added on there now to include podcasts. Uh, Diminishing Returns is on there. So, hey, you guys like rating films out of 10 on there. Why don't you go rate Diminishing Returns out of 10 on there as well? And that'll be really good to like boost our visibility because it's early days and most of the podcasts don't have five ratings yet. I think I think the Ricky Gervais show does and uh, we should take him on. I, I reckon we can beat him. Um, what, what, I'm, I'm sorry, hang on, I'm just looking for Development Hell on podcasts. Should I be able to find it? Well, not yet, it's not, like, the time of recording, it hasn't gone out yet. You haven't put it out yet, okay. I was gonna, I was gonna subscribe to it live on air, and I thought that was, that would have been a nice thing. I'll pretend. (laughs) Okay, I'm currently, I'm currently searching for Development Hell on, and and, there it is. Wow, that looks good, that's a nice (laughs) That's a nice thumbnail image you've created. That's nice. Okay, I am subscribing. I'm officially subscribed to this brand. Alan, I'm going to go on the IMDb. Rate it five stars. I'm going to go on the IMDb and give Diminishing Returns a 10 if you give Ooh. Development Hell a 10. How about that? How about we scratch each other's dicks here? <laughs> yeah, perfect. <laughs> uh, right, thanks, Connor. Um, I'm sure we'll see you again at some point guys thank you so much it's always so much fun Uh, being on here and i appreciate it and i love it thank you thank you thank you thanks for having me